This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Great to have you with us again. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm going to get into what I find to be a completely predictable situation in evangelicalism. Completely predictable. Here's why I say that. Because we now have an effort that's come out from leftist activists who regard themselves as progressive evangelicals, which is, in my estimation, an oxymoron. And they have come out with a statement called pro-life evangelicals for Biden. How does that work exactly? I'm not really sure how that works, because generally speaking, when you're pro-life, you don't go all in for the candidate who is as anti-life as it gets. Now, I remember Joe Biden back in the day when he was actually supportive of the Hyde Amendment, but this is a guy who, as we know, has shifted his positions any which way the wind blows in the Democrat Party. So whatever is hip and cool today, Joe backs it 100% and always did. Of course, he's the same guy who's a plagiarist, but we won't dwell on that for right now. So this is just incredible. And the reason I say that it's predictable is because It was back in 2016, if you'll recall, that there was a conference called Evangelicals for Life. Who was at the helm of this? Russell Moore, the Democrat operative, as a lot of people like to call him because he worked for a Democrat. He's always claimed to be pro-life. But all of a sudden, this new narrative emerged in this Evangelicals for Life conference. What was the new narrative? Being pro-life doesn't just mean that you're against abortion. It means that you're for life across the human spectrum. And people were left scratching their heads a little bit. What are you talking about? Immediately when I listened to this claptrap, I thought to myself, oh, new strategy. So what you're basically doing is you're trying to lump every single leftist cause into a pro-life category and then try to guilt evangelicals who have been conservatives all of these years because they really see conservative issues as aligning with the Bible and trying to guilt them into voting for Democrats. This is the big problem that they've had. That it drives them crazy that 81% of white evangelicals and you know a huge majority of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump in 2016. It especially galls people like Russell Moore, the head of the ERLC of the Southern Baptist Convention, because he despises Donald Trump. They got into it on Twitter and they went back and forth and, and, and then candidate Trump referred to Russell Moore as a nasty guy with no heart. And then he put that on his Twitter feed. Russell Moore put it on his Twitter bio for a time and tried to make a big joke about it until somebody came along and reminded him, hey, could you have a little professionalism for your office? You are representing ostensibly the ethics and religious liberty cause for the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. Perhaps you shouldn't be mixing it up with a guy who could become the president. And then he did become the president. And Russell Moore basically has been sidelined because people remember what a virulent anti-Trumper he was and never Trump he was, didn't respect him, didn't like him for doing it, thought he was a nasty guy with no heart. And then he almost kind of lost his job. And and then you had a bunch of these Southern Baptist 
guys who back him up within the convention, making sure that he didn't get axed. He should have been axed for that and many, many other things, but he wasn't axed. So what did he do in 2016? He comes back in 2016 with this Evangelicals for Life conference. And I'm not saying this came after the Never Trumper stuff in the election of Donald Trump, because this was in 2016. But around this same time period, he has this conference. And who does he have on the stage? He has Ron Sider. Ron Sider spoke at the Evangelicals for Life conference held in January, held in Washington, D.C. Just remember, you can be pro-life on the issue of abortion, but you also have to be pro-life on all these other causes that matter to us, like refugees, as we are very concerned about our friends at World Relief who are losing money as federal government contractors because Trump has brought down this whole apparatus that was letting all these refugees from some dangerous terrorism-induced countries across the globe, and Trump put a stop to it, and World Relief is losing money. So we better get out there and tell evangelicals, you better start seeing the refugee issue as being a pro-life issue. Now, what was so dumb about this is that you can't do that. January is a time when we remember the Roe v. Wade decision, which is always and only about abortion and about stopping abortion. That's what the pro-life cause is all about. You can't just grab the moniker and expand it. But Ron Sider, who's been a leftist activist for a very long time, heading up a group, I think he's the president emeritus now, of Evangelicals for Social Action, which, by the way, changed its name recently uh, and took Evangelicals out of the title. But Ron Sider wrote a book. I did a speech about this a year ago at the Stand Against Marxism conference, and you heard some of that if you were listening to my show at the time. Ron Sider wrote a book in 1987 in which he made the exact same argument. And he said that you have to be pro-life in everything. So what did he talk about in 2016 at the Russell Moore conference? Why abortion is a social justice issue for all evangelicals. So this is the background. Now, let's get to the story here. Because he wrote a piece, Ron Sider did, with Richard Mao, who's the former president of Fuller Seminary, the uber-liberal Fuller Seminary in California. And here's what they say. Prominent evangelical leaders have just released a statement urging pro-life evangelicals to vote for Joe Biden. The signers include John Huffman, board chair emeritus of Christianity Today. Yeah. Not surprising. Richard Foster, best-selling author of Celebration of of Discipline. Jerusha Duford, who is Billy Graham's granddaughter. Brenda Salter-McNeil, author, speaker, and longtime InterVarsity Christian Fellowship leader. John Perkins, founder of the Christian Community Development Association. The two authors of this piece and a number of former presidents of evangelical universities. So how do they justify this? The signers are diverse, they say. A Trump voter in 2016. (laughs) They have one ex-Trump voter. Wow, that's super diverse. Their statement acknowledges that as pro-life evangelicals, we disagree with Vice President Biden and the Democratic platform on the issue of abortion. Well, you should disagree with Joe Biden on the issue of abortion because he is wanting to cement Roe v. Wade into federal law so the Supreme Court could not overturn it. That's one thing he wants to do. He's for abortion up until the moment of birth and he wants taxpayer funded abortion. Uh, he couldn't be worse on the issue of abortion. He's been endorsed by Planned Parenthood Action Fund. NARAL loves him. All the worst people in the world on the issue of supporting and defending the cause of life love Joe Biden. Oh, but, but you know, we disagree with him. Well, if you disagree with him, what are you doing supporting him and endorsing him as if this is some kind of, you know, it's kind of like, let's just compare the issue of abortion to things like the color of 
crosswalks, right? I mean, some people think they should be white. Other people think they should be yellow. But, you know, we're not going to divide over something like that. You could be a Christian and have a different position on what color the crosswalk ought to be. Right. Abortion is just like that. I'm making that analogy up. But that's how they're acting. If you care about 61 million babies having been slaughtered in the wombs of their mother, little innocent children being dismembered in the womb, then what are you doing supporting the guy who wants to go even further left and even more radical on the issue of abortion? Well, you have to be a committed leftist to come to that position. And I'm going to go into a little bit more on this. The statement goes on to say, but we believe, after saying we disagree with Biden on abortion, but we believe that a biblically shaped commitment to the sanctity of human Human life compels us to a consistent ethic of life that affirms the sanctity of human life from beginning to end. Oh, okay. Because nobody on the GOP side of the aisle believes in the sanctity of human life from beginning to end. Really? Is it a bunch of conservatives who are saying, let's have more physician-assisted suicide? But better yet, why don't we push for euthanasia? You know, and I kind of think what they're doing over in the Netherlands and doing in Belgium, I think that's really awesome. Like if somebody's an alcoholic, but he wants to commit suicide, we should help him. Yeah, the conservatives in the United States are the ones who are advocating for that. Or is it the left? Who is advocating for a culture of death consistently? It is the left. It is not the right. It is not the GOP. It is not the independents who kind of go back and forth on whatever issue happens to be important to them on any particular day, but generally see themselves as pro-life. They're not the ones who are not affirming the sanctity of human life from beginning to end. It is the left. What about those leftists in New York and Illinois with those radical pro-abortion laws? Are they not a problem for you? No. And you know why? Because this is a group of people who wants you to vote for Democrats. Period. End of story. They are leftists and they are trying to have it both ways and you can't. And when we come back, you're going to hear some of what Ron Sider says to justify some of this. We're going to come back right after this. Did you know that over 32 million babies have been aborted worldwide since January 1st? Every single one of these babies died during the COVID-19 pandemic. Why isn't the world declaring these babies as lost? Here's Dan Steiner, the president of Preborn, a ministry dedicated to saving babies' lives from abortion through ultrasound. I sense God's broken heart over the issue of abortion. You see, he sees every little baby that's being formed in the mother's womb, and it breaks his heart to see when the lifetime that he has planned for them is taken from them violently so often. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the U.S. and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Would you help us show that these babies' lives are not forgotten? One ultrasound costs just $28. Five ultrasounds are $140. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. For Several years now, Syrians have been pouring into the country of Lebanon to seek refuge amid terrorism and civil war. Now the crisis in Lebanon has escalated in the aftermath of COVID-19, a crumbling economy, and a devastating explosion in Beirut. Yet the spiritual crisis in Lebanon is the most devastating crisis of all because many people there have still never heard anything about Jesus. That's why Heart for Lebanon is on the ground ministering to hurt.
hurting refugee families in the South and the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon, providing emergency supplies, Christian education, Bible studies, and worship gatherings for these refugee families. And the impact is incredible. Your investment of $116 will help two families impacted by the crisis in Lebanon to get emergency supplies that they need to survive during the next 60 days. But best of all, these families will hear the gospel of Jesus for the very first time. A gift of $58 is enough to help one family. Can you help? Call now, 888-247-5499. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Now we have pro-life evangelicals for Biden. What? I can't think of a more oxymoronic name for a group or a statement. People like Ron Sider, this leftist activist, all his progressive buddies, Richard Mao and Richard Foster and all the usual suspects. These people are so desperate to get evangelicals to vote for Democrats that they can't stand it. They don't know how to come up with any new narrative. So the new narrative is, yeah, we're totally against abortion, but we have to defend the human life and the sanctity of human life from womb to tomb. Because the left does that, the left does the exact opposite. Joe Biden is advocating for the worst policy on abortion I've ever heard. It is absolutely radical. And these people somehow go, yeah, but climate change is a life issue and poverty is a life issue and smoking is a life issue. Okay, so all of those things are just as important as abortion. Well, not even Ron Sider said that. When he spoke at the Evangelicals for Life conference under Russell Moore four years ago, and Russell Moore picked up his narrative of let's be holistically pro-life to try to take away the moral power of the pro-life movement by saying you're just one of many issues, which is not true. This is what Ron Sider had to say. He, he launched into this diatribe on the inconsistency of the pro-life evangelical movement. Listen to cut one. So for many decades, I believed and taught that Christians should act on the belief that from the moment of conception, we're dealing with persons, human beings, made in the very image of God. Choosing to end the life of innocent persons is simply wrong. And for many decades, therefore, I have been a part of the movement to reduce abortion, both by legislation and through supporting programs to assist unwed pregnant mothers. I'm happy, my friends, and honored to be a part of this gathering. But over the years, I have also been disturbed by what seemed like a fundamental inconsistency in some parts of the pro-life movement. They talked a lot, rightly, about combating abortion, but often seemed unconcerned when poverty and starvation and smoking and environmental degradation and racism and capital punishment also destroyed the lives of persons made in the very image of God. All right. Now you're also seeing him and listening to him there talk about the image of God. That's another phrase. Russell Moore has moved into mainstream evangelicalism when he came on board at the ERLC. We're made in the image of God, the image of God, the image of God. They keep using the same buzz terms and, and we are created in the image of God. I don't try to you know, say anything otherwise, but they use it as a bit of a battering ram on your conscience. Then Ron Sider talked about how he doesn't really think pro-life evangelicals are pro-life. This is cut two. It was not entirely unfair, I think, when some jokers said that it looked as if we believed as if life begins at conception and ends at birth. It bothered me 
when I saw that some pro-life leaders opposed government funding, for example, to search for a cure so that people with AIDS would be able to live. It bothered me when an important pro-life senator fought to end abortion, but then defended government subsidies for tobacco, which destroy the lives of persons. It bothered me when pro-life advocates failed to support programs designed to reduce hunger and starvation and thus save the lives of millions around the world. All right. So what he's really trying to say there is if you're a Republican, you're heartless and government is set up to do everything. And if you don't support the big government solutions to all of this under the confines of the left, then you just don't care about the life issue. It's ridiculous. That is absolutely ridiculous, not to mention the fact that when they have done some of the polling into how people give to charity and give to groups that do help people who are in poverty, the most generous people are the conservatives, not the liberals. He doesn't talk about that, though. But even he agreed, as he's making this ridiculous argument, that there is a moral distinction between abortion and these other allegedly pro-life issues. This is an interesting twist. Cut three. I agree, my friends, with Pope Francis, who said when he spoke to the Congress last year that Christian faith teaches, quote, our responsibility to protect and defend human life at every stage of its development. Before moving to a few of these other pro-life areas, however, I want to acknowledge one important distinction. Abortion involves the directly intended taking of human life. There is a moral distinction between that and allowing poor people to starve or growing tobacco, which kills people, or even executing people convicted of murder. I don't claim that the moral situation is identical in all of these situations, but I do think it's strikingly parallel, and I think that in each case we're dealing with persons created in the image of God. Okay, well, I would argue that what he said four years ago, now he is undoing with this pro-life evangelicals for Biden movement. You are equating abortion on the same level with all of those other issues. You are, because you're saying we care about abortion, but it's got to be about all these other issues that the left loves. We want to be good leftists because that's the best thing for being Christians. No, I would actually make the argument that you're not pro-life at all. You're not pro-life at all. Not at all, because if you were pro-life, there's no way you would go anywhere near an endorsement of Joe Biden. How could you? Look at what he wants to do. Look at how he wants to constrain the consciences of taxpayers who are pro-life. Look at how he's turned on the Hyde Amendment and wants to put Roe v. Wade, codify Roe v. Wade in federal law. And as we've talked with Mark Crutcher of Life Dynamics about this before, he's actually made what I think is a very sensible projection that, in fact, they're setting things up so Planned Parenthood can come under the auspices of the federal government and be protected forever. You don't think the left would do that? Of course they would do that if they thought they could get away with it. But here goes Ron Sider again. Because of global poverty, millions and millions of people die unnecessarily every year. Every single day, 18,000 children under five die mostly from hunger and preventable diseases. That's like about 35 jumbo jets crashing every day. Many of them die of pneumonia, diarrhea, and malaria, which are easily preventable. But their poor parents and their poor countries lack the resources to provide the inexpensive treatment. 
Now, thank God that private Christian organizations and U.S. governmental foreign aid save the lives of millions of these people each year. But American evangelicals are giving only a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of their income to reduce global poverty. All right, here we go again. It's the same drum he's been beating for the last 40 years, basically. It's the same drum. It's the same drum. And where's the proof of this? In fact, the Foundation for Economic Education points out the number of people worldwide living on less than about $2 a day is less than half of what it was in 1990. The biggest gains in the fight against poverty have occurred in countries that have opened their markets. Free market enterprise, is this what the left stands for? Not at all. They continue to say capitalism has also made poor people's lives far better by reducing infant and child mortality rates, not to mention maternal death rates during childbirth and by extending life expectancies by decades. Also, think about capitalism's engine of growth, which has enabled the planet to sustain 7 billion people compared to 1 billion in 1800. And if you multiply the gains in consumption to the average human by the gain in life expectancy worldwide by seven, Humanity as a whole is better off by a factor of around 120. Nor does this man mention at all the fact that when you are giving to a lot of these, say, African countries and you're trying to get food and, you know, the whole effort back in the 80s, uh, you know, Bono and the like, oh, we got to feed the world and all this. We are the world. Millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars have been spent from generous people in the West, especially the United States, to get food to people who are hungry. The problem over there in large measure is the corrupt governments that are standing in the way of distributing those supplies and that food. He doesn't talk about that at all because he's trying to make the left look good. And he also, you know, gives an excuse for Black Lives Matter and, you know, whites are are the problem. And so, you know, you need to repent for what you've done. Then here's his conclusion. Listen to this. Cut six. The evangelical pro-life movement is rightly, deeply committed to ending abortion. But I am certain that we would be far more successful in persuading others to join us in this important cause if we were widely known as the people who also led the effort to combat poverty, which kills millions of people, if we were also leading the effort to combat death by smoking, if we were also leading the struggle to stop the deadly effects of racism, if we were also leading the movement to prevent millions of poor people from dying from the effects of climate change, and if we were also leading the campaign to insist that even murderers are still persons made in the image of God, and therefore their lives should be respected even as we protect society from their deadly actions. That kind of completely pro-life movement, I believe, would profoundly reshape American society. Oh, it would reshape American society in the image of the left. But that's not the direction that Christians should be going. That is the party of tyranny. It's the party of death. It's the party of totalitarianism. And it's the party of radicalism and socialism. Why in the world would any Bible-believing Christian go down that road? This is deception, folks. It is flat-out deception. These people are not pro-life. If you're pro-life, there's no way that you would be doing something like this. And you would never come up with some kind of cockamamie excuse to try to push people into the arms of socialists. Period. End of story. And I find this despicable. And to never once point the finger at the left. Doesn't that tell you everything you need to know? It's absolutely incredible. And I'll tell you something else. You guys have been 
so loving and so kind in our campaign for Heart for Lebanon, where we truly are helping a ministry that's on the ground, not just getting food to families in need in these refugee camps in Lebanon, but Muslims who are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, coming to faith in Christ and getting discipled. That's what it's all about, folks. And we are trying to help 100 families. This is an opportunity for us to show the love of Jesus. This is the practical stuff of life. You can call 888-247-5499. will help one family. And we thank you so much for your generosity. 888-247-5499. We'll be back. This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Ezekiel 37 recounts how the Lord brought a valley of dry bones back to life. You remember this passage. And as tendons and flesh and breath came back into the bodies over those bones, a vast army appeared. And it really is an incredible passage for a lot of reasons, but it's hopeful as well. Because we know that we love and serve a God who specializes in bringing the dead back to life, not just the Lord Jesus Christ or all of us as Christians one day, but he's also the God who takes us sinners dead in our transgressions and sins and breathes new life back into us by his grace in Jesus Christ. That also means that no matter what we did in the past, there is hope for us and there is forgiveness and healing. And we're going to talk about that today with Kevin Goose. He has been in ministry since 1991, has served as a pastor and a chaplain, and today he is here to talk about his book called Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. Kevin, welcome. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, thank you. You have your own story, I know, that serves as the backdrop for this issue. Can you tell us about your past and especially about your resignation as a pastor? What happened in your life that really made this issue a key issue for you? Absolutely. You know, unfortunately, I was one who ignored a lot of the signs and symptoms of burnout in in life and ministry, just thought I could keep pressing harder and harder. And ultimately, it just really led to a a, a blurring of lines in which I crossed some ethical and and moral boundaries and and hurt my, my wife, my children, and those I ministered to. And in that resignation, had to walk through a um, pretty extensive restoration process. But in the in the years since, have just been grateful of what God has done to restore. But I do know those moments where you wonder, how did I get here? And Lord, what's what's the road and what are the steps past that? Yeah. Now you talk in your book, I know, going all the way back to your childhood about some of the events in your life that shaped you. Looking back on the, the course of your life leading up to your resignation and the crossing of those ethical and moral boundaries that you just mentioned, what shaped you? What went wrong in your life as you look back that led up to that? You know, I would say that one of the, there were probably two key, I would say, pitfalls. Uh, One, I just believed that if I worked harder, tried harder, and pushed forward, that I could ignore or believe I was past some of those wounds that go back into, you know, into early life. And, you know, I would say second that came out of that is that 
I believed a false perception that if I didn't perform, then others wouldn't really choose to be in relationship or friendship with me. And, you know, those it's unfortunately there's lies that when when they're believed early, they become roots in someone's life. They there were roots in my life. And when you try to deal with the struggles as an adult, it's almost like snipping off the dandelions. Hmm. You think you've got it, but the root's still there. Yeah. And and so when I look back, those were two significant factors where uh, I did much too much uh, dandelion snipping, so to speak. Yeah. Now, it is difficult, I understand. When you're a pastor, when you're in ministry, it's often the case that there will be people who are very type A, very hard workers, but they neglect their relationship with the Lord along the way. And I know that's always something that pastors and people who are very busy for the Lord will talk about. Do you feel like that happened to you as well, that, that you were caught up in doing and, and that was part of the problem in your life? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, it's one of those where you can kind of just get focused on that doing for the Lord and, and lose sight that the doing has to flow out of being. You know, there's a, a sense in which is, if there's not that flowing in, uh, it becomes a reservoir that's depleted and you have less and less to offer. And, and out of that, emotionally, mentally, relationally, you're kind of just uh, running on fumes and, and just gasping. And, and definitely there were warning signs that, that I ignored and pushing harder and harder did not solve the problem. Right. That's difficult. So when it all came to a head, when you resigned uh, as a pastor, what was your life like then? What happened to you? And and what did you think about your own life at that point? You know, it's this amazing uh, kind of kind of two sides of a coin. On one side, I struggled deeply with a, you know, uh, a self-loathing of just, if you had said to me, Kevin, you're going to you know, break your covenant with God, you're going to wound the heart of your wife, you're going to hurt your children or bring shame on the name of Jesus. I, I don't believe that that would have happened to me. So on one hand, there was a sense of just horrible shame. The flip side is at the same time, I was overwhelmed with how God, through people, through His Word, through His Spirit, was pouring out grace and I remember reflecting on it going, oh my God, why why now with such powerful grace being shown? And I really clearly in the Word, through our skilled counselor, through the Holy Spirit, through loved ones, just kept hearing the same message. Um, I needed to walk a journey where I received accountability, yes, but also a grace that was not based on performance. Clearly, if I could go back, I'd sure change some things. But at that moment, it was a, kind of a juxtaposition between the necessary consequences, because, lead, you know, as a spiritual leader, I had failed and had betrayed trust, but also that God was saying, there is a future, and I'm going to show you a different way to go about serving me. Well, right. Now, did you feel at that juncture that you could not redeem your past? Did you look back with regret to the extent that you thought, I'm done, I don't know how I'm going to go forward from here? You know, definitely those thoughts crossed my mind. I was fortunate to have people in my life who were saying other messages, but I did have to walk a journey to understand the difference between shame and regret. You know, shame kind of going back to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve and their sin, they caused them to withdraw from God. You know, the and so there's those lies from the enemy, the lies we tell ourselves to where you pull back, where repentance we run to God because we say, Lord, I have kind of like when Peter said, Lord, you have the words of life. Where else would we go? Yes. And so the sense of repentance that leads to regret, it says, if I could go back, boy, I sure would change it. But since I can't, 
God, I have to trust you to rebuild. And so I, I definitely had to walk that journey because at the beginning, it was much more marked by shame, but there was a journey to understanding how you could, I could still have the necessary regret and remorse and repentance, but still see that there was a future and a hope. Well, that's important. That's absolutely critical for being able to move forward. And I know you talk about some of these situations where people need healing and freedom. And it's interesting because one of those situations you mentioned is the glory days. People look back and say, oh, everything was so great. I was a star athlete in high school or I had a great job 10 years ago. And now I've lost my house and my you know, my wife left me or whatever it happens to be. They always look back on when times were good and that prevents them from from moving through what may be a difficult season now. I mean, what did you learn in that regard through the experience that God took you through after you had resigned, just understanding that you can't look backwards like that and just say everything in the past was perfect because normally it really wasn't that perfect. We tend to really sentimentalize the past sometimes. Oh, you're absolutely correct. It's, It's one of those where we often don't recognize the good times until later. And then we try to recreate those. And there is that, you know, I think of the parable where Jesus talked about how the person who's plowing can't look back. You know, they have to keep looking forward. And so there there definitely is that those times of being able to look at the past with clear eyes, again, with God's help, His Word, His Spirit, skilled helpers. And for me personally, it was to be able to look at it clearly just to recognize that I, on the positive when the good things happen, I didn't count my blessings enough and the negatives to recognize that those ultimately had to be dealt with so that they were no longer nagging there. And so, yes, those glory days when people try to recreate it or pine for them, uh, it hurts them. In fact, Solomon in Ecclesiastes, in spite of his, you know, sometimes his cynicism in that book, he, he, of course, God still spoke through him, and he talks about how looking back actually isn't healthy for us. And I definitely had to walk through a journey of that letting go, because those glory days, both positive and negative, uh, were definitely holding me back. Yeah, in, in a way, it would seem that if you're holding on to the glory days, you're really not dealing with what's going on right now. And as you said so well just a few minutes ago, the issue of repentance means you're running to God. You're not running from him. You're acknowledging what your sin was. You're acknowledging where you are and turning to him for help. That That's the whole key, isn't it? To turn to the Lord in those moments. Absolutely. At the times that we feel as though the least worthy, uh, that's when God wants us to turn to him the most. There's these amazing, I say, tensions in the Christian faith where it's like, wait, when I'm weak, he's strong. That's when it. I humble myself, he lifts me up. And in a sense, repentance by admitting complete failure and inadequacy, God says, now, will you let me build something that will last? Love it. We're going to go to a break. Kevin Goose with us. His book is Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. Back in a moment. Are you in need of a healthcare program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for 
you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. 855-565-2561. If you could provide God's word to a Bible-less believer elsewhere in the world, would you? Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send that Bible today. Hebrews 13.3 urges us to remember those in great need, noting that when the body of Christ anywhere is found lacking, we're encouraged to help provide it. These believers live where churches are small and remote, where authorities aren't welcoming of Christianity, and where Bibles are scarce. As Pastor Carlo in Peru says, they need the hope found only in God's Word. Everyone wants to read the Bible, but what happens, there are a few copies here in the area. Many of them will Uh, be sharing the single Bible. For only $5, believers around the world will receive Bibles and be discipled in their new faith. $35 sends seven Bibles, $100 sends 20. And because of a matching gift right now, your gift will be doubled. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YESWORD, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. So glad to have you with us and glad to have with us Kevin Goose. His book is called Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. I don't think there's any Christian alive who looks back at the past saying, I did everything right and everything was perfect. And if I could only go back to those glory days and relive when my life was wonderful. Uh, We all have things in our past that bring us shame, that bring us regret and that require repentance. And Kevin talks all about that in his book. And, And we were talking a little bit about that issue of people who dwell on the glory days. Something else, though, Kevin, that you mentioned in the book is people sometimes who need healing and freedom make the mistake of dwelling on missed opportunities. Talk about that one a little bit, if you would. Oh, absolutely. Many times we look back and we go, oh, if if I would have turned right instead of left, people get decisions they've made in relationships or education, careers, or past failures. And what happens is they believe that the life they presently have is like a consolation prize life, meaning I, I couldn't have God's best today. And the problem there is that we believe that our failures are greater than who God can be in our lives. I think of Moses as an example. It sure wasn't God's will for him to murder an Egyptian soldier. And so 40 years later, when God calls him at the burning bush, I mean, Moses was like arguing with God and debating why he couldn't be God's chosen vessel. (laughs) But the reality was, is that God had to help Moses see that it wouldn't look like he thought it would, but God could still accomplish his full purpose in Moses' life. And I find that for many people, coming to terms with that is vital. Yeah, that's great. You know who else leaps into my mind is Joseph. I can't imagine Joseph looking back on the course of his life and saying, if only my father didn't favor me, if only I wasn't sold into slavery, if only I, <laughs> if only I wasn't hit on by Potiphar's wife and, and thrown in prison. I mean, all of those things, you think of Romans eight twenty eight and God causing all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Joseph is a perfect example of that as well. All of those things that God was using in his life were 
coming up to this important moment where his brothers met him again and he was able to say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's that's such an encouragement that there are stories like that of people in God's word who, who give us that reminder that just because you had all kinds of terrible things in your past doesn't mean that God is not in control of your life. Oh, absolutely. And your example of Joseph is, is, is so telling. He was sold into slavery when he was 17. He's elevated to the kingdom at 30, you know, as the second in charge. And he meets his brothers about when he's 39. And, you know, God had to, like you said, prepare him for that very moment. And then years later, when Ad dies, when Joseph's about 52, is when his brothers come before him begging for their lives. And then Joseph utters those amazing words from Genesis 50 20, you meant it for evil, but God has used it for good for the saving of many lives. And so you're right, Joseph is just this, this pinnacle of what happens if we allow God the time and space to heal those broken places. Really great. Yeah, for sure. And, and another thing you mentioned is this healing from past pain that people tend to drag old hurts into the present and look back with regret on something that happened and they don't get over it. And, you know, it's interesting, Kevin, because I've met people like this and they will still be musing about something that happened 20 years ago and you're left thinking to yourself trying to be compassionate but also trying to say listen you're a Christian you've got to move on here you can't just dwell on something for the rest of your life why do you think people tend to do that though what what is going on in the head and the heart of someone who just can't let go of something terrible that happened way back when you know I think there's a couple things that are key one the fear is that if I let it go that somehow um the person's going to get away with it. It, it. We think back to Jonah. In Jonah 4, Jonah admits the reason he ran it wasn't because he was afraid. He admits, he says, God, because I know you're a forgiving God. And so sometimes we feel if I hold on to it, then there can be justice. But yet the very thing that I'm holding on to is the bitterness that's just choking the life out of me. And so I think for, for people, number one, it's, it's being willing to say, God, I have to believe that this person's sin against me is not greater than the blood of Jesus Christ over me. And it's a real, it's a real point of difficulty because I can't even let someone else's sin against me be greater than God in my life. Mm. And letting that go and trusting that the Lord knows what justice will look like. But then there's even the greater fear. What happens if God even forgives them? <laughs> right? I know yeah. I love that God forgave me, but there may be a person or two in my past that, well, Lord, I can't even imagine them coming to you. And, and God has to remind us that, okay, as hard as it is to imagine that, the same redemptive power that saved me is the same redemptive power that can save them. And we sometimes wrestle with that because it's so personal because of a wound in our life or the wound in someone's life that we love dearly. Yeah. And isn't it fascinating that we always want gobs and gobs of mercy for ourselves, but we want justice for other people. Why? Why is that? It just seems to be a common human refrain. God, go get that guy who wronged me, but please have mercy on me, Lord, for my sins. I've never hurt anybody in my life, which is never true. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. It's like, I want people to evaluate me on my 
intentions, what's inside of me, but I want to evaluate people just on their actions. Yeah. You're so right <laughs> that we struggle with that. It is a, it is part of the, the, the human condition that we definitely need God's continual help with. Yeah. Well, one of the things you also mentioned is that you didn't let the lessons about gratitude and contentment and counting your blessings go deep enough to change your perspective when you were going through everything you were going through. What are you talking about there and what kind of advice would you give to other people about, boy, be, be thankful to God for what you have and be content with what you have? Why is that such an important thing? You know, because we, I believe that as people, again, from my own story, but then for also to others, is we tend to define life based on what we don't have instead of what we do have. And so at the moment when there's a blessing, we tend to say, okay, but what's the next thing to achieve or to get or to aspire to? And so what ends up happening is we define life. It's like when Paul says in Philippians 4, I've learned the secret to being content in all things, and then he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I think the struggle is we define life on what is yet to come rather than this idea of being present with God. Mm-hmm. And so as in, as in so as an encouragement for others to say it's not an accident that when God gave us his name, not just his the descriptions of his nature, but his name, it was Yahweh, I am. Because for for God, he's not bound by time and space. And sometimes we need to be reminded, I sure need to be reminded, that each day there were blessings I need to purposely say thank you for. And when I didn't, I tended to to look life through the lens of cynicism or a critical spirit or despondency or discouragement, and I was missing the sustaining power of God that was right before me. That's really key. That's a great point. And, and the importance, again, of seeking God's forgiveness, not only that, but the forgiveness of others. I mean, I think there are a lot of pitfalls we can face in our relationships with other people. And anytime you have a situation like yours, there are always other people involved. How did you deal with that angle? Because for for some Christians, it's easy to maybe go and say, Lord, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. And it's harder sometimes to face the people you've sinned against. Have you found that to be the case as well? Absolutely. I I had to make a distinction and God had helped me make a distinction between his forgiveness based on him knowing me perfectly and other people who needed to hear me express a desire for forgiveness and then see me live that out. Um, I mentioned in the book that I can't ask, I can't tell someone when to trust me, but I can be trustworthy. And I would say, especially over that first year, I probably had conversations like this with about 200 different people. Um, And, but I, and so there are a couple things. One, the deeper the relationship the more patient I had to be. So for instance, the journey with my wife was say longer than the journey of an acquaintance, but my wife trusted me with her entire heart. So it should take longer. And, and, and that journey must be there. The other is, is that I had a, a mentor who gave me a great example with Zacchaeus where Zacchaeus said, I'll give half of what I have to the poor. And he says, and if I've wronged anybody, I'll pay him back four times. It was a posture of repentance, meaning mm-hmm. Zacchaeus probably could not have kept track of everybody he ripped off. Right. But he basically said to Jesus, hey, as they come across my path, I'm willing. And I believe that's a posture that I was mentored to take. And in doing so, 
those conversations have happened over the years, but God's always helped in them. That's a wonderful example and such an important thing for all of us to remember as we recall Ezekiel and that great passage that you base your book on where you can see God breathing new life into dry bones. He can do it in your life as well. Dry Bones, the name of the book by Kevin Goosen. Kevin has been such a good guest. It was wonderful to have you here. Kevin, really appreciate your being with us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right. God bless you and take care. And thank you for listening to Janet Meffer today. We really appreciate your tuning in every single broadcast and we will see you next time. By the grace of God, take care.